0: Hello again, I'm Peter Bruce and this is this week's edition of my series, Podcasts from the Edge, available to you on the Financial Mail website and also on the Apple and Spotify podcast platforms. Podcasts from the Edge, as I see it, is my opportunity to become less of an idiot by learning something completely new every week. I was looking back the other day at the guests we've had and I just know I've been enriched by everyone and my guest today is one Wendy Leslie global. The Chief Economist at the Agricultural Business Chamber of South Africa and the author of a really, really good book called Finding Common Ground, Land, Equity and Agriculture. I know this because I read it um, uh, before publication in order to provide it with a comment on its back cover. He's also a visiting fellow at the Witt School of Governance. He did agricultural economics at Fort Hare and an MSc in the same as Stellenbosch. He's on President Cyril Ramaphosa's Presidential Economic Advisory Council, served on the Presidential Expert Advisory Panel on Land Reform and Agriculture between 2018 and 19. He's also a member of the Council of Statistics of South Africa and a commissioner at the International Trade Commission of South Africa. He's also most, much more important than any of these things. He's a columnist for Business Day. So there's no end of things to talk about, Wandeela, but my primary ignorance, uh, which needs fixing, is farming, closely followed by land reform. My latest interest, as you will know, is in the use of import duties to protect what seems to me to be uh, the South African business establishment, but we might be able to get to that later. For the moment, I remember reading at the end of last year or early this year that South Africa has just become – the second largest citrus producer in the world, which seemed to me to be unbelievably exciting. And it sort of just shows you, doesn't it, what we can do.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think we we still have a potential, Peter, to even do more than uh, uh, that. uh, This area for expansion, Uh, in the Eastern Cape, in KZN, in Limbojo. And I think we can still grow and and excel more in our agricultural exports, and also just on a job creation. And I mean, you remember at the end of last year, there was that announcement of about 700,000 hectares of land that will be given to to beneficiaries people. And obviously that when it progressively come into production, I think it would be excellent uh, in addition to do that, those exports and the value that we already get from agriculture. But the state also has about roughly 2 million hectares of land that if 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 the authorities decide to give that to people, that could make meaningful impact. I'm hoping that that will be part of the next release that the state uh, would probably consider in an effort for job creation and just boosting agricultural exports.
0: One of the great things that you do um, and I see it mainly on Twitter, is that you constantly update your audience, which is quite large now, about how well we're doing along the way. And it's wonderful because it's really always good news. Our exports seem to constantly be growing and our crops seem to be constantly doing well. Obviously, there are now and again in, in various parts of the country periods of drought and hardship. Um, but fundamentally, we can more than feed ourselves and we can more than feed bigger export markets when you talk about um rural areas coming into transky or, or or limpopo kzn um is it is it is there anything that we that we can't grow i mean you know is exp- or let me put it another way should we be concentrating on on certain fruits and 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 vegetables to grow rather than others are we are we wasting our time doing certain things
1: yeah, I actually, uh, Peter, just before getting into that question, I think one of the things we need to really appreciate is how excellent our agricultural sector has been. I mean, there gets to be a lot of talk, some slightly negative, um, understandably so, when there's pessimism either about the land policy or any discussions uh, that are around that. But if you look at the sector from 1994 up until to today, and you look at the agricultural output, you look at the money that has been spent on machinery, uh, money spent on various inputs in the sector. I mean, the value has more than doubled since 1994. Employment has remained relatively at good levels, just under a million people working in primary agriculture. On agro processing, we've seen a massive expansion over time. So we, we have been really doing well. And I think to your point, or to say, what can we really expand on more or what can we focus on more? I think there, I mean, we, we, we have to obviously always when we think about agriculture expansion and think of it in a context of what are some of the problems that we are facing. And in the rural side of South Africa, we're facing the issue of rising um, unemployment. There's a bit of hopelessness in some of the other areas. Um, and obviously that through the lack of economic activity. Then when you're thinking about agricultural expansion there you have to think about what crops can actually be of high value, what crops can create most jobs, and also what value chains can really be able to bring some livelihood, a boost livelihood in those communities. And that gets to be the horticultural space. And there, I mean, it's vegetables and fruits. But obviously not most of South Africa can actually do that. In fact, large areas of South Africa are really more for grazing than livestock. And that's where then we consider the agroecological conditions um, of various areas. But I think as priority to your your question is really about uh, horticulture, that needs to be priority in certain areas um, of, of the country. And if that doesn't do well, then you begin exploring all other crops.
0: There are two things I want to. I'm interested here in one is is land reform um, or the reform of land that is not occupied by, by black farmers, uh, either owned by white farmers or either not used at all or either owned by the government. And as you say, there's somehow we've got to find a way to release this onto the market. I just wonder if there's a way of um, of addressing land reform. Such that it creates instead of just creating you know three hundred owners of very large farms or whatever it might be, or four hundred or a thousand, is it possible to create fifty thousand owners of smaller, more compact farms that somehow cooperate with each other? I mean, if you look at a map a satellite map of Spain where I worked for a long time along the along the Mediterranean coast north and south of Alicante, which was the Republican area in the Spanish Civil War. And, and Sp- Franco punished the Republicans for 40 years after that. They had less rights than black people did in South Africa. No taps, no education. They had nothing. And with the coming of democracy, what they did was extraordinary. They were peasants, these people. And what they did was they began to grow uh, vegetables and fruit under plastic, and if you do, uh, and each one has their field. Um, and they, it has just been the most unbelievable success because what you can do now, because it, everywhere that they did this, the Spanish government built an airport. And, and they, you, you know, you can now pick a tomato um, fr- from your patch in Alicante on a Thursday, and it will be in Marks and Spencer in London on Saturday. Um, because it 's a direct flight from Alicante or wherever it may be, and I just wonder whether we can 't crowd in it 's not a job creation it 's an employer creation or an owner creation is there a, is there a Is there a way of densifying ownership on smaller patches of land?
1: Uh, Yeah, I I think that's that's the discussion that, um, uh, you know, many people, if if you listen to Ben Cousins, for example, at University of Western Cape, um, you listen to some of the scholars also from the continent, um, that discussion has been coming out to say, why don't we create as many smallholder farmers as we can and make sure that then the land benefits as many people as possible instead of a few rich black guys that get... Um, These land parcels. But there are a few issues uh, there. I think, I mean, if South Africa had good weather conditions, uh, good climatic conditions, like what you see in Spain and what you see in parts of Asia, that would be possible. But the challenge which we are sitting with, I mean, South Africa is a fairly dry country. You actually don't have much land to move around uh, on. More than two thirds um, of of, of the country is pretty much for grazing and stuff. So the minute you begin focusing more on small farms, um, your productivity uh, gets to be a challenge uh, onto that, which is why people end up having the bigger farms that you do see uh, all across the country. But what I think we can improve on, though, is on a beneficiary selection of who gets to benefit um, on the land. I use the word where I was saying black guys, because that's what actually has been happening since 1994, where you get few rich black folks benefiting um, on the land. And there's studies, again, from Western Cape University and other people that are speaking about that. But I think now, going forward, we need to be clear on saying, how do we select the people that actually have interest on that land parcel, but also we are more biased towards young people and also women who have been disadvantaged for quite some time. And this is a point that we reflected on when we were writing uh, the Presidential uh, Land Reform and agricultural Report, And that obviously led up to the beneficiary selection uh, criteria policy, which is now coming on onto government uh, legislation stuff. And even on the land parcels, the 700,000 hectares, I think they will be using in part some of the ideas from there. But I think going forward, it need to be more aggressive onto that. But in as far as the small farms, I also do think that we need to be deliberate on creating commercial black farmers. Because if you look at South Africa's food sector right now, black people make up between five and 10% of the output of the And that causes a lot of bit of discomfort in some parts of of society. And I do think that uh, emphasizing on a commercialization uh, will assist in large part uh, if you deal about with the political economy of farming.
0: Yeah, look, I wasn't trying to suggest that, you know, we crowd all of the want-to-be-black farmers onto small little patches of land. Um And I perfectly understand that, you know, the need to have big black farmers as well. But there are so many people. You know, what I didn't want to see um, really is agriculture being used or land reform being used as a sort of job creation program. I mean, I, I'm interested in ownership. Um And... and uh, I was just very I remember being impressed and moved by the way the Spanish were able to do it, but one you and I take the same route uh, down from Johannesburg, or we have i don't live in Joburg any longer, down to our home province in the eastern cape uh, and we see the same we see the same things and this, we have the same feeling in our chests of you know the shared potential of it all is just mind boggling um, and if you go there at the right time of the year. Uh, it's green, you know. It does rain there. It doesn't not rain in Transkei. It doesn't not rain along the wild coast. It it rains all the time in Ponderland. Ponderland is so deeply green, it's breathtaking. Um, and there is so much, and it does rain in northern KwaZulu-Natal, you know. And, and it just seems to me that, that there is so much opportunity, but we don't always understand the... Um, the The sort of the, the the problems in getting to in getting it done you know i'm sure on land there's you know that there's traditional leadership is difficult and 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 um and ownership is difficult i know i'm sure you know too Gloria Serobe and Whippold have got a big project going around round near willowvale and it's taken an enormous amount of time to get. Farmers to cooperate with each other and to trust one another and to trust the system and and and, and. Um, how how difficult is it going to be? Uh, we'll start with the start with the 700,000 hectares that you spoke about um, earlier. This is the part. This is the 700,000 that is going to be made available to black farmers. Where is it going to come from, and how will they become owners of the land that they're on, so that it can never be taken away from them?
1: Yeah, of, I mean, you, you're raising uh, important points there because uh, firstly, on the TransKai, uh situation, I, I mean, there's a, there's a great potential there that we, we, we're living um, in that area and it's been like that for decades. And I think that if there could be concerted effort in really addressing the infrastructure needs uh, of the province, but also promoting more of a joint venture approach uh, type of development, Amongst those that are in the traditional leaders that are in the province, if they can work with agribusinesses and many other people, I do think that we could see uh, some of, of improvement there. And I actually worry a lot about, because I mean, you will remember, Peter Beck, in 2012, uh, BFEP, uh, the Bureau for Food and Agricultural Policy at Stellenbosch and Victoria University. They came up with a study where they were estimating that in the coming years, we will lose roughly about 1 million tons of maize that we get in Bumalanga because of the expansion in mining and other environmental activities in them. And their suggestion was that we're supposed to be expanding more in that Eastern Cape area, the Transkai area. And since then, 2020 to today, um, there hasn't been much progress uh, aside from areas in the Northern Transkai. Now, uh, and and I think that we do need to to, to pay attention on that, especially if you're looking at also the levels of unemployment, the levels of poverty in in those areas. To the second point about the 700,000 hectares that is in there, I mean, my criticism to government was that this land is made available to people, but again, we are giving people long-term leases of about 80 years, non-tradable leases. And obviously, then the issue of a challenge of financing these farms is going to continue to be sitting on, on, on yeah. Um And I think that they, their approach should have been maybe after five years, we make sure that people have a right to buy on that land, and then they can be able to access private capital and all other activities. And the land, Peter, uh, some of it is actually occupied uh, by people, so government will really be doing more of a formalisation. But there is some of the, uh, the new land parcel uh, that is sitting on the state hands that will be given to to new beneficiaries. And I think my my interest is also largely more on the other two million hectares that the state is sitting with. To so say how do you, how can you in a more effective way. Uh, ensure that there is a fair transfer of that land, but also people get land rights or long-term tradable leases. And the process you work uh, with agribusinesses and the other people to crowd in capital so that at least it's productive after that transfer. And we don't sit in in this cycle of land from farms um, that are failing. Um, and I'm hoping that uh, I do think to a certain extent when one speaks to policymakers that, that, that the sentiment is changing. Uh, I do hope that in the future, they can be more aggressive on giving up the land
0: rights. You're very, you're very polite about policymakers, Wandila, and you're lucky, actually, because you you work with arguably the most competent minister in the government um, in Toko Dudiza, um, and she's fabulous. And um, uh, um, I just wonder whether you ever see any sense of frustration, perhaps, <laughs> on her part with her colleagues, Because I remember uh, there was a, a, um, I don't know how far it got, but there was certainly an idea being spoken seriously about by the Chamber of Mines a few years ago, where they were prepared to basically hand over all the surface area under which they mined to black farmers. And they would not only make the land available, but they would finance the setting up of farms, finance the setting up of networks of, of Transport and, and, and you know the, along the, what they like to call the value chain um, and I think it all went south after the land um, the changing the constitution to, to allow for land reform without and um, paying for it came into, came into being people lost heart, people thought that um, there was a silly thing to have done. But I've been quite impressed, I've got to say, and I'm interested in your opinion, Surarama Post has, has in a way, finessed this debate quite nicely because we now have a piece of legislation coming up. I think the period of commentary is over. Maybe it's been extended. But it's interesting watching how low-key and how subdued are the complaints about it now compared to initially when the constitutional change was first raised. What has happened?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I, think, I think COVID happened, Peter, uh, because it, it, heading to March last year, that's where the constitutional framing was actually, the constitutional uh, committee was gonna announce um, the their view on, on, on to, on, onto this. And obviously it was going to be tabled in parliament and many discussions were gonna happen um, after that. Uh, but, but I mean, I, I do share your sentiments that since the, the pandemic happened, uh, that discussion sort of like uh, went under the, the radar. But I'm actually a, a, a bit more nervous now that it might come back and uh, I worry that he will come back and derail some of the processes. As we speak right now, uh, the Department of Agriculture and Private Sector are completing the Agricultural and agro-processing Master Plan. And on paper, the Master Plan is really positive in a sense that it spells out all of those areas we we're talking about, for example, that have potential for development. Uh, it outlines what value chains uh, we could focus on, job potential, and there's also some bit of enthusiasm leaving, uh amongst some of our members at actors, the agribusinesses, to participate um, onto this. So the hope now this will be launched sometime at the end of this month. But at the same time, around the end of this month, um, the committee that is dealing with the adjustment on the cons- on Section 25 of the Constitution, with a mandate to make explicit what is implicit on the Constitution, will also be tabling their view right after probably the launch of the master plan. And my worry is that if that discussion comes up and it gets heated and ugly again, it might actually derail us from that spirit of these master plans which we do hope that they might bring some life in rural economies. So I'm sitting at a point where I'm really a bit more concerned about how these events will all unfold and how will uh, various partners that are involved in a debate engage in this discussion. And obviously my personal preference, and even an organizational perspective, is that there shouldn't be any changes on their constitution. And I think you've seen that in various writings that we've put out over time.
0: Yeah. To what extent is government the problem? I mean, in terms of just being able to get, to move from um, writing the solution down on a piece of paper and actually getting it done. I mean, I love the piece you did, um, one of your columns. Uh, It was, I'm sure it was last year. Um, Yeah, last March or so. And you say, you started writing about some issues that were close to your heart, one such topic is the untapped agriculture and agro-processing potential in the Eastern Cape and other former homeland regions of KwaZulu-Natal and Popo. Um, uh, but the drive I take each December from Pretoria to the Eastern Cape is a constant reminder not only of the potential but also of the poverty uh, and unemployment that plague the provinces. Um, and you say a few years ago I'd hope that by the end of 2020 some of that potential I and many others have written about would have been realised, or there would there be work, there'd be work underway to re- realise the potential. And you put your you put your you say you put your hopes in the election of Oscar Maboyane as the uh, uh, premier of the of the province, um, hoping that he would get something done. But you say that uh, uh, it might be a mistake to prejudge whether he's followed through on his promise. Um, but um, uh, it would have been encouraging to see how Eastern Cape plans practically to lean on agriculture as part of the recovery strategy from the current pandemic. And you don't have that, you don't, you still don't know, do you?
1: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, a, it's a difficult situation. I still don't know, I, I still don't fully know. I mean, he, he made a speech about two weeks ago, you probably saw him uh, just the day after the or so in parliament um, and they made pronouncements about how he thinks about agriculture in the province. But, but, but I mean, the, the bottom line story is to actually see um, the, the actual plans, but also see the department engaging with some of the people on the ground. I mean, I I, I drive around the province. You speak with people in um, like Jeff Every at Emma Velo at um, uh, dairy Farms, and you speak with people like uh, the, the, the co-ops in, in, in Human stock and many other uh, players in the province. And, and I mean, uh, folks are, are not entirely happy about many things uh, that I have. So, had the department started engaging with those private sector players, thinking about involving uh, the, the communities um, and the traditional leaders, and be proactive on putting out that information about what they plan to do going forward, one would have had some bit of hope. Um, but but maybe there is a planning process that is underway. Um, I mean, I, I look forward to see what really that they, they put out uh, on but uh, they are sitting on a gold mine in agriculture uh, relative to other industries that they have in them.
0: Coming back to come back to products again. So we're number two in the world now in citrus. What is the citrus production or citrus exports? I, I, I can't remember what the We're number
1: two on uh, on, on, on on citrus exports, but also on, you know, on on production, we 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 are also a significant player here.
0: Okay. So where else can what else can we go? You know, get into the top three bracket, and that's what, you, in terms of product, where are we, what are we really good at? I mean, avocados are now beginning to, I mean, people are shooting each other about avocados in places like Mexico. Uh, even here, I believe it's now become a target of crime. But avocados are surely a a a real growth industry for us. Do you have to do you have to have a large, huge, thirty thousand hectare farm to do this, or could you get Ten people, each having slightly smaller farms, putting their, putting their, you know, putting their parcels together.
1: Yeah, I mean you you can you can have relatively smaller parcels, a few hectares for one person, um, and then put all of that together. And in fact, for all the horticultural side, I mean you don't need that much land as it's the case in the, in the grains um, and and in all seeds. But I think if you look on on the world and you look at all of their horticultural space, in fact, in all the major fruits, South Africa does feature one way or another within the top 10 of all of that. Um, But in agriculture, in aggregate, we are are around about the 32nd biggest agricultural exporter in the world. Uh, But still, I mean, for a country of our size, it's a massive um, uh, contribution. And that's roughly on a year like last year. It was about ten point two billion dollars or so, up three percent from twenty nineteen. So we, we we are doing relatively well. And I think that if we can look at all the land supply, either sitting on private sector or government that is not fully utilized, and we think of the way of putting all of that in full production, um, we, we we could we could we could do really well. And and, and I think that on jobs, uh, create job creation. There's also massive potential. It's not wrong that the president keeps mentioning agriculture as amongst the sectors of uh, development. But I think what needs to, to happen now is that follow up, which you were saying, I'm being relatively fair to policy makers. I do think that if they can really progressively drive this, not only in Pretoria, but the message should be consistent between Pretoria, Bisho, and Mtata. Because I can tell you now, if you could sit in the conversation here and then you drive to sit with the province. Then you go to Mtata or Musiki Siki, you listen to conversations that are happening. They're usually not in the same rhythm about what, what is being prioritized and what needs to be done. And I think that if in all those three spheres of, three spheres of government, we can have a consistent messaging, um, but also rely on, on private sector. And I keep bringing this point back because of the resources that I know that are there um, on the know-how, but also on the capital side. Which I think that government should somewhat really tap into those resources and that goodwill that does exist uh, in, the, in the sector on seeing
0: rural economy uh, develop. As you, I mean, if you're sitting in Pretoria or Job or Khartoum and, and having those discussions, then you're going to Lusikisiki, Siki, um, uh, where my mother was born, by the way, um, and, uh, and having a similar conversation, and, and you say the two don't really match. Where's the problem? Is the problem the centralization, the central decision-making, or is the problem in Lusikisiki?
1: I I think the problem tends to be down in in, in Lusikisiki um, in a sense that, and perhaps maybe on a communication side, if Pretoria could be more active, um, or at least on channeling their message to the colleagues that are on the ground, um, and then encourage them to interact then with those communities and those agribusinesses. Because, I mean, people hear and we write about it, you write about it um, on Business Day and everywhere, and then all of these agribusiness forces, they read about this social converting. But if when they go to their local towns to actually engage with the officials, they're not getting the same ones that the president shared, and many people have commented about that, that is not, that is, you, you know, it's always a disappointing space. And I do think that that's the area that we need uh, to make sure that um, it gets corrected. And obviously, another big challenge in some of these areas is the story of infrastructure, which I think if it's not addressed, um, I mean, it's going to be difficult to fully bring those areas into, into full production.
0: Uh, you know, I hate to say this, but I remember growing up in the trans under, uh, the during the apartheid years in the 60s and 70s, but mainly the 60s. And not far from my house lived a guy called Hans Abram, and Hans Abram was the commissioner general of trans And whatever he said, you did. That's, what, that's how it worked. And the roads, the dirt roads were all perfect. Um, everything, you know, the sides of the tar road, the infrastructure was maintained meticulously. And I just wonder whether the structure that we've created under democracy may not have been a little bit too out of our kind of, you know, out of, out of our reach to have provincial governments implementing decisions into the far reaches of their corners. And the Eastern Cape, by the way, is a massive province, you know, and a complicated place, as you well know. Um, I just wonder sometimes whether it wouldn't, you know, whether it wouldn't serve us to go back to that old model of com- of command and control, where Hans Abram would get a call from Pretoria to say, Commissioner, hey, you know, we are now going to do X and Y, Please report, And of course, he would do exactly as he was told, and everybody would do as they were told down the road, and it would work, you know, to to the extent that apartheid required it to work.
1: Mm. So I think, Peter, I mean, things like that might, might actually work, because we, we, we've been dancing around uh, 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 these problems, talking about challenges of the local governments. I mean, I was just reading... Uh, yesterday on Business Day, an article by my colleague at Stats SA, David Everett, who was actually talking about the same challenges of the of the local government. And, and, and maybe exploring some of the effective ways that were done by the previous regime might not be a bad idea. In fact, in agricultural development, uh, myself and Professor Johan Kerstin and the late uh, Professor Mohamed Karan were actually saying in developing agriculture, we also need to look back into some of the ways that were applied by previous governments in developing the current white farmers, either it was the production schemes or whatever, and see what ideas we pull from there, which could be useful for development of today. And I think the same method for local governments, studying what was effective in the past and bringing some of the useful concepts uh, for today, uh, it might not be a, a bad idea because we are failing at this moment.
0: Does the do you know because I don't I don't know because I've not really looked at it hard enough whether they whether in Kusasane Dlamini Zuma's district development plan I just wonder whether or not the district development model if you understand it might be of some some help I'm not sure what the district development model uh, that in Kusasane Dlamini Zuma is responsible for is whether it could answer it does it does he is it about perhaps forming like what the Americans have. They have counties in each state. So you would have a county sheriff and a county this and a county that rather than each town having, you know, the problem, you know what Amtata looks like and what a mess it's become. Um, and that's partly because all the people who own the land in Amtata don't live there. They live in Jo'burg and Gauteng, and they rent out to people who have to take no care of the environment around them because this doesn't belong to them. Um, uh, if you are you an expert, dealer in the in the district development model?
1: No, I mean I'm I'm just I'm just a
0: farmer.
1: <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I think I mean I I do hope that we we get some useful ideas there there Peter because I mean there are smart folks like uh, our colleague at Business Day, Ayabonga um, who's yeah. also sitting at the Presidential Economic Advisory Council. I mean he's he, he has been thinking deeply about these issues about this uh the district development model. So I, I look forward to see what will be the final plan on on this. But I think what gives me hope is that there are people that are uh, are solid and working and looking into this as to what they they, they will end up coming with. I have no idea that. I focus more just on rural and farming issues.
0: Yeah. Come, come back to um, um, if, if we if we can. As a, a jumping from one of your uh, interests to another, um, you you're on. I think I said the the um, you're a commissioner um, on the International Trade Commission of South Africa, ITAC. And ITAC, uh, for listeners who don't know what it is, and I'm going to describe it inaccurately, um, but ITAC is where you take your Complaint about um, uh, import competition being imports being dumped on you in your market at below uh, the prices at which they'd be sold in their home market, and this is unfair. And ITAC then will take action to protect you. Um, I've I've been writing lately and having some fun, and people have gotten very excited about it because um, uh, excited good and excited bad. Um, because there's a rash of new duties coming out of ITAC on steel, on uh, re- certainly regulations on textiles, on peanut butter, um, on aluminium, on, um, uh, there's a new, on, uh, no, I was going to say copper, but that's a scrap problem. Um, somebody's just supplied, oh, bell equipment is just supplied for, for protection. It's like, it's like it's almost as if President Ramaphosa has a, another leg of his business rescue, his his COVID business rescue problem. You know, either you can take from the 200 billion rand loan guarantee scheme from the banks or just go to ITAC and get some duties and uh, we'll take your competition away from you. What's, I mean, do you feel, is is there, am I I completely insane here or is there something going on that, um, you know, that the public is not aware of? Why are there so many duties being, Certainly asked for. I mean, they're not been given in, yet in all circumstances, but um, there's certainly been a raft of them.
1: Yeah, I mean, you've you started an, an exciting conversation there. I saw the the the, the safer the steel and engineering federation uh, writing to you yesterday or this morning's paper or so, so something. So the, the the conversation has been a, extremely interesting um, that, that you started. But I think I remember. I mean, the talk
0: yeah,
1: yeah to, to your point i think the things there peter are in two are in two levels um and, and it's good that you you have stimulated uh that, that, that discussion but i think the first point is some of the companies maybe might have been having some of the the the, the, the challenges or uh, complaints and sitting on them around trade policy for a while but i think with us now being on a COVID and obviously everyone looking at all aspects that can make their business as efficient as possible. Then obviously, they, I think they are taking a clear look and saying, okay, what is unfair? What can be corrected to ensure the, our efficiency as a company? That might be one of the, of, of, of the reasons why many applications are going uh, to ITEC. But obviously at ITEC, when we receive some of these, uh, we, we have to apply our, our judgment on all of the empirics that are, that, are, that are in there, we do proper due diligence and looking at the re, at, at, at all of these aspects, the bigger team that, that, is, that is there at the offices. And as commissioners, we, we apply, I think, uh, an independent and a fair judgment onto this. And I think all of that which you have seen being um, uh, published, uh, I think when you read those applications and details, you would agree that uh, there's always fair assessment and fair judgment on what ends up uh, being a final take in each and every one of the products. But obviously some of them you will see many being published for public commentary, because that's what the regulation and the law uh, tells you as a a commission to pretty much do. But I think what ends up being an important one is what the final take that gets to be taken um, at the end of that. And is there sufficient period for various views to come on the table, which I think ITEC does allow that. um, And then we weigh in all of that evidence and various views that are coming uh, from many people. As I've been sitting, for example, reading and watching what you have been arguing, and many people coming against you, because that gives me a sense also of what's, what's the temperature and what are the issues that are happening in society, aside from the empirical evidence that I also have to weigh my head on you know, with other colleagues.
0: Yeah, yeah. I and mean, I haven't seen the CISA letter, but it's you know it's the establishment, basically. CISA has always been the establishment in... Uh, in the steel industry, it doesn't matter who's in charge of it, and I know the guy in charge of it very well. Very last question, Wandile, if you don't mind, the Presidential Economic Advisory Council. How's that working? Has it had time to make an impact? I mean, have you been able to meet online um, at all during all of this during COVID? It was launched, you know, with some. It was launched with a bit of pomp and ceremony when, um, you know, with uh, various. Foreign luminaries on it as well, and uh, and yourself, none of Yeah,
1: I thought you were, you were, you you would be thanking us and feeling our contribution
0: to the country. Well, I don't know, <laughs> I, I don't know what it's done.
1: No, a lot, a lot a lot is being done. We we have been regularly meeting, um, and we've been meeting with the president and also the 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 the, the economic cluster on various meetings. And I think the the council has made a contribution in a number of things. I mean, since the start of the pandemic, um, and in fact, there was a physical meeting where Mariana Mazzucato and many people and even Gozi that is now at the WTO flew in the country. I think last year, the physical meeting was on the 6th of March or so. That was the last uh, uh, physical meeting. But virtually, we've been meeting regularly and um, assisting and contributing uh, to what the president uh, is doing as far as economy is concerned. But obviously, as you saw in l- sometime last year, when our report on the uh, economic reconstruction and recovery was leaked, um, you saw what ideas we carried um, onto that report. But the the, the, the the final take is always a take of the government because we're sitting in an advisory position, we're advising the president, and then he decides then on how to take that advice and channel onto them. But I think, I think we, we have been trying.
0: I want to ask you one very last question because I've been in a position not as often as you but once or twice where you get asked for advice by the government, you even do a bit of work, you know, you go and study something or you have conversations, you have meetings with a group of people, you report back to a minister and you never see anything that you discussed, nothing sees the light of that. and what you see eventually as a result of your conversation is so bizarre and so depressing. You just say to yourself, I will never, ever, ever do that again. Um, I certainly know I'll never do it again, but I'm not you, you know, and, and I'm in a different stage of my life and a different position. But it must happen to you all the time.
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm laughing, Peter as you're saying that because, I mean, um, I, th- I think I think that one of the things that, I mean, one perhaps maybe has you have an appreciation of is the fact that the, the the politicians are sitting in a slightly different position than us in a sense that they are contending with these various interests that they have to make decisions on. So when my advice will be coming in, they have to weigh it on with some of the other interests and think also about the political consideration of that and uh, and then take a position from them. But I think in, in some of the spaces that one has been involved in uh, so far, uh, perhaps we have been a bit more lucky and we have been a bit more effective. If you think, for example, starting about the land reform one, the beneficiary selection uh, criteria policy, which we suggested in there, is now coming on as a law. Uh, the land donations policy, which we suggested there, is coming in as a law. The entire report cabinet weighed it on and it's influencing the government policy. And I think that even at the Presidential Economic Council, I mean, not everything that we do suggest uh, falls in. But some of the ideas, we do see them coming up here now. But certainly there are some ideas, Peter, that don't see the light of day. Uh, But I mean, you have a green passport, you are young, so you just have to keep pushing. Because if you don't do what's going to happen. You are here. So...
0: Uh, well, listen, you, uh, you, just listening to you, you've had a lot better luck than I've had with, uh, with the government, but you try harder than I do, I'm sure. Um, listen, that was really special. Thanks so much, Wandele, for giving me so much of your time. I hope we can do this again, catch up with, uh, with, uh, all of your projects, uh, because you, 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 you live in a rich vein of potentially good news and possibility, and you open it up for us, uh, whenever you write. I'll be back with another interesting guest, maybe not as interesting as one dealer, at the same time and in the same place next week. Until then, thank you for listening to Podcasts from the Edge, and I hope to be with you again soon.